0: You're listening to the Modern Web Podcast. For more podcasts, videos, and events, find us online at modern-web.org or
1: follow us on Twitter at modern.web. That's M-O-D-E-R-N-D-O-T-W-E-B. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Modern Web Podcast. I am your host, Rob Osell. I'm an architect at This.Labs. Today, we are very excited to be having a sit down and talk with Jesse August uh, about security, software engineering, get, podcasting, so many things that she is involved with and interested in. We are going to be having a conversation today. For those of you that don't know her, Jesse is a back-end software engineer at CybeSafe, the co-host of the Glowing in Tech podcast, and the leadership team of Coding Black Females. Jesse, how are you doing today?
0: I'm really well. Thank you, Rob. How are you?
1: I'm doing really well. You know, for some people that are listening to this podcast, they may know that we at this dot host some other events. And it was at our Women in Tech Monthly Mentoring uh, where, Jesse, you got to speak to some of the attendees there. And coming out of that meeting, everybody was sort of unanimous and saying, we want to hear more uh, from Jesse. So we knew immediately we had to get you on the podcast for a longer form conversation. So thank you so much for taking time today to speak with us.
0: Thank you so much for the invitation. It was an incredible event. And um, I love what you guys have done with creating that space and holding that space for women in tech. It's a wonderful community.
1: It really is. Uh, And what's great about it, and I'm sure you know this as an organizer, sometimes a group of people can just find that spark. And as an organizer, you get credit or whatever else, but you realize as an organizer, you've tried to do many things, and not all of them form that spark. And for some reason, that mentoring group has been so supportive of each other, and just people show up month after month. It is one of the most interesting things that we host, uh, and I love it. And I love that, realistically, it's not recorded. So it it exists as an ephemeral moment that people share every month. I just think that's super interesting. All right. now the first thing that I wanted to get into is for people that don't aren't familiar, I would love to hear a little bit about your journey and not just kind of like where you are now in tech, but kind of how you arrived at this moment, because I think that's interesting as well. And I think indicative of the stories of so many software engineers now. So could you kind of explain sort of, uh, you know, wh- where you are in t- the tech space and kind of how you got to this point?
0: Yeah, absolutely. So I'm definitely somebody um, that some would describe as having quite a squiggly career. I went to university to study psychology because I was fascinated with human behavior. Um, no idea what I wanted to do with it afterwards just knew that it was what I was enjoying in that moment and so when I did graduate I was kind of lost for which direction to go in. A lot of my friends and and kind of um, fellow students at the time were going off to graduate courses or going traveling and um, there didn't seem to be a set career path anymore whereas before that structured there was a lot of structure around education and academia but up until that point I'd, I'd planned to get a degree and that was it so I was definitely quite lost after that um and took a while to kind of try a few different things I was a teacher for a little while I traveled and was a nanny abroad in Spain um and then when I came back to London I her was um, approached by a recruiter for a behavioral science cybersecurity startup. Um, it seemed like an incredible kind of cross section of the things I was interested in. I was already quite a nerd and into tech, but also um, have the psychology, the understanding of psychology to be able to go into that and be interested by the behavioral science element of it. So, um, yeah, I joined the Cybersafe team in the marketing and sales department to begin with and kind of within a very short space of time there, I had decided that I really loved the company, but I wasn't so keen on the role. Um, And when an opportunity presented itself to move across to customer success, I did that. And through their managing clients and speaking to product and engineering all the time about product features, developments and bugs, I fell in love with that building process. And it was then that I kind of went into a big rabbit hole trying to figure out how I could make that transition into a more technical role without having a computer science degree um, or the study to kind of put me in a position to be able to do those things. So through a lot of Googling and kind of attending a lot of events, I found communities that were able to help with that. And Coding Black Females was one of those. And it was through Coding Black Females that I met a lot of people in a similar position to me who recommended courses and boot camps. And I did an evening boot camp throughout the pandemic in 2020. And um, yeah, on the completion of that, I was able to transfer internally to an engineering role at Sidesafe. a few different roles and the company has changed a lot as well in the nearly four years I've been there. Um, but yeah, it's been fantastic. I'm now a back-end software engineer and absolutely loving it.
1: You know, it's always interesting to talk to people that have gone through this route as well, because I find that learning styles differ so drastically. Um, I once worked with somebody that uh, I asked him, you know, he'd always read books at lunch and he once told me, I would have never gone to college except that it gives you a piece of paper at the end. And that piece of paper is very important. And for me, I'm the exact opposite. I, I went to get a master's degree that honestly, I don't really care about the paper. For me, it was about the experience of being in the classes. I learned so well being in that environment. So, you know, for you, what did you feel about the path that you sort of took? What What is kind of your learning style? And do you think that there are some that you would recommend more than others? Or do you think it's like that, that it's just very personal about, what, uh, you know, what works best for different people.
0: Yeah, I do, I do agree. It's personal. I think at the time of making these pivots and these switches and figuring out what I was doing, I was only ever doing what I enjoyed until I found something I enjoyed more. And I think at the time, it didn't necessarily make sense. But where I am right now, it feels like all of those things that led up to that point, somehow contribute to helping me to do what I do today. So it's, kind of one of those things like in the moment it seems like none it it's not so cohesive but looking back it's like each step was a was a step in the right direction to finding where I am now I'm also a great lover of books and that's definitely my learning style I love getting into textbooks and I would one day like to go back to formal education to be able to study technical topics in like great deep depth great detail and with the support and stud and resources of the university but for now yeah I'm super happy with where I am.
1: Now, I think this arrives, this this, um, helps us arrive at a point where I don't know if terminology in the tech world or just in the world in general is quite ready to handle the situation we find ourselves in, which is that you enter into the software engineering world as a junior developer. And the junior developer role has traditionally meant a whole host of things and comes with it a whole host of assumptions and sort of preconceptions of what your skill set is and what you're capable of doing, but you join a growing rank of people uh, who have coding as a second or third career who come with tremendous skill sets uh, in personal development and communication skills already developed. And I love that you had written a blog post about a junior engineer's perspective on being on a leadership panel, uh, which is just sort of for some people uh, can be a bit surprising to say, you know, look at this impact, look at the impressive, uh, how impressive Jesse is as a as a junior engineer, can you kind of explain a little bit about what it's like to kind of carry that junior label, but yet in many ways to have I don't know if you would say transcended it or t- to not represent you accurately in that way?
0: Yeah, absolutely. I think that's a lot of what the hesitation is behind somebody not necessarily taking that plunge into making that career switch because they're constantly evaluating the prospect of them switching as them being like ah, now I have to start from zero again and I don't think it's like that at all so for me I already had a few years of work experience by that point although I was very new to being a software engineer, I was a junior software engineer. I had a whole breadth of experience in other areas, which meant that I wasn't necessarily a junior. So I think that it was, it was an incredible opportunity to be on that panel. And um, again, a shout out to another amazing community, Triangles, who host events for women in tech based in London. Um, I think that it was important to have a kind of perspective like that because even though I was junior in my day-to-day role, I was handling leadership um, positions elsewhere. So um, a lot of what I spoke about was the work I do with Coding Black Females and kind of being in um, rooms and making decisions that you wouldn't necessarily expect a junior to be making. And so all of those things, again, are contributing to how I conduct myself at work and who I am and the leadership skills and skills in general that I'm building. But yeah, you wouldn't necessarily expect from somebody who is very new to the role.
1: This is the thing that has uh, sort of blown our minds as well, as we've sort of hired people that have come on from second careers. And you're talking to people that have, that they previously ran businesses, started businesses that were successful and employed people for many years, and now they're a junior developer. And so you meet them and some of their, uh, I guess, their their main skills, their communication, their organization, the way that they think about problems, how well they do under pressure, all of these things are extremely advanced, sometimes more advanced than senior engineers, but they still have those technical challenges. So I kind of find that it's often like a double-edged sword. On the one hand, I think if places can recognize the skills that these people have and invest in the, the education pieces, the mentoring that gets their... Uh, technical acumen up to the same level as the rest of their skill set, I think you find that they advance very quickly. But on the flip side, the one thing that I've always sort of kept as a thing that I've kept my eye on is on the same token, because you have these people whose skill sets in the non-technical or not non-technical, but the sort of tangentially that realm, their communication organization, I find it can often be very easy to reroute them to more senior non-technical roles, to make them the PMs, to make them uh, you know, uh, to the leader, the tech leads of the, the project that maybe aren't contributing as much of the code but are helping to manage. I'm kind of curious your thoughts on that and like ways to make sure that if people do come with these skill sets that um, they, they sort of hold their place that they want in the tech world instead of allowing themselves to sort of be rerouted to some place that someone thinks is more suitable for their, you know, for their skill set.
0: Yeah, that's a really good question. I think what the tech industry and what especially technical departments are in need of is quite a big culture shift in understanding that you don't necessarily need to come with the however many years of experience you deem relevant to be able to progress to a more senior technical position. I think that as we see this new wave of non-traditional candidates moving through, it's, it's key, like you said, to make sure that we're listening to what they want to do, what their needs are, what their ambitions are, because really it's like, if you're not helping to move somebody towards the things that they enjoy, they're not going to thrive in the same way at your place of work as they would elsewhere, where somebody does give them that respect and the space to do that. So I think it is, I understand the kind of, hesitation and apprehension in wanting to make that investment because it's a risk right you don't know if it's going to pay off if you're going to invest all of this time training this junior um when you could put them in a safer role that they might you have kind of more of a guarantee that they'll perform well at that thing whatever that means um then you're 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 kind of you're never going to find out how brilliant they would be in that technical position and um i think there needs to be more places that are willing to take that risk and when they do, they'll see that it it often will pay off. And people are capable of making their own decisions. If somebody does go for that technical role and it's not for them, they will know what's best for them and and they'll be able to move. But I think making that decision on behalf of someone else is um, only ever going to limit what what they're capable of doing.
1: and sort of like your your sort of blog says about you know being a junior engineer's perspective on being on a leadership panel, I do love this idea that I've increasingly seen um, amongst our teams, you'll have environments where, you have a junior, this, one of these junior engineers, sort of um, soaking up as much mentoring as they can from another peer or a more senior engineer on that technical dimension, but at the same time holding a position of sort of soft leadership—not necessarily formal leadership—but guiding the team and dragging them through, you know, following the process and and communicating well and catching sort of edge cases. And you find this sort of bi-directional mentorship start to forming on these teams. And I, I, I love it. And I think, That will be off-putting for some engineers who feel like that uh, might be bringing them down or making them feel like they aren't as skilled. But I think for anyone that's sort of open to that, it's a super exciting time to have this variety of people and skill sets on these teams going on. Um, The best teams kind of have that sort of give and take of of mentorship. And I think it's something that I've only really seen recently since we've added a lot of of people that that have this kind of job history.
0: Absolutely, and you don't need to be a technical expert to ask the right questions in the room at the time you're making these big architectural decisions, right? Like, I think that something I see non-traditional candidates do really well is advocate on behalf of the cost, on behalf of the client, customer, user, and um, I think that that can be an incredibly powerful thing that you can do from day one. You don't necessarily need to be, yeah, have been in the industry for years and years and um, a, a kind of technical expert to be able to do that.
1: So I guess this sort of dovetails a little bit into the podcast that you do. So you have uh, your co-host on the Glowing in Tech podcast. First and foremost, the episodes that you all have are amazing and the production value is superb. So I mean, I need to understand how you all have that set up. So for anybody uh, listening, we'll have links, of course, in the description. You should definitely go check it out. But could you walk us through a little bit of just how that landed in you know in your lap, how you decided to start that and kind of what you're hoping to accomplish?
0: Absolutely. So. Myself and Amber, both career switchers, so Amber for context is the person that co-hosts the podcast with me. Um, We went through this journey together and we were, like you mentioned before, the sponges in the room trying to soak up everything we could. And whenever we were searching for technical content, for just ways that we could hear people like us speaking about um, technical things and, and, and their journeys, it was really difficult to find. There just was a massive gap in the content that we were looking for, which was looking for black women, black people, women, speaking about technical topics and tech in general. And so it was from there that we kind of thought, well, why don't we give it a go? And um, our first season, the the showcase is is an aim at kind of, we personally know a lot of incredible black women in the industry. And we know that they are also a tiny percentage of um, what's represented within the tech industry, especially within the UK. Um, and so we thought it would be incredible for that first season to do a showcase of all these women we know. And so each episode centers around a guest and what they have done to get to where they are and really just trying to, uplift those people, give them a platform to be seen and heard. And also we're hoping in that, that we can help other people to see themselves following in their footsteps and doing a similar thing. Because like I said before this, we couldn't find anything like that to help motivate us. So the aim is to try and help, um, yeah, increase that representation.
1: The guests that you've pulled also are amazing. Um, I, I, I recognized uh, several of them from other events that we've done as well. And it's just, it's amazing that you've had that, in that community as well um so i guess my question is is i suppose you've answered this already of why focusing on the stories it's it's that these stories aren't out there to be to be seen do you see this as being the focus going forward do you think it'll sort of change a little bit uh or you know have you have you all done planning for where this is going to go
0: yeah we're just in the middle of trying to figure out the direction and so um we love what we've done with the stories and i think it's been a great way to kind of figure out as well how we can move around in the industry and and because a lot of the women that we interview are much more senior than us and it's incredibly humbling and also just just a great way to see what's possible Um, so now I think what we would like to focus on moving forward is what happens when you're in that career so I feel like season one is kind of how to get there what these women have done to do that and now um, I think the next one we want to focus on leveling up and kind of what are the different routes you can go in? Like we spoke about being an individual contributor versus um, being kind of the managerial route and yeah, exploring all the things around that. Cause I think that's a fascinating one as well.
1: Now, one of the things that I, as I mentioned at the top is that the production value is is phenomenal. The set that y'all have, the quality of the sound and everything like that, I guess. Do you have any advice or tips for people that are thinking about or like they say, you know, that's a great idea of a podcast that you have. I think that there's content or stories that aren't heard in another dimension and I would love to make a podcast. For anybody that's sitting there thinking like that and is inspired, do you have any tips that you've uh, that you've gleaned so far that, that you would share for them or or any pushes to, to on whether this is a good idea to pursue or not?
0: Absolutely. So I think... Um... If you feel like you have some stories to tell, you should absolutely go for it. I think something that we were really lucky to have was the support and um, kind of guidance from the Coding Black Females organisation. And so my advice would be to reach out to communities that are for those underrepresented people that you're trying to help, and try and see yeah where, where you can collaborate because it's it's beneficial. For the community that we're trying to represent, right? So it's kind of establishing that that partnership and finding people that you that can support you to help amplify those voices.
1: Great. Now, uh, in your sort of, I guess, your your main job at CyberSafe, uh, you're dealing with cybersecurity. Um, I'm kind of curious, like from the cybersecurity space, was this an interest that you had had for a period of time? Was this something that you've sort of uh, gained an interest for or a love for while, while working at the company? Can you kind of explain uh, you know, what your role is uh, and, and sort of your focus when it comes to security?
0: absolutely so i think the thing that drew me in and that i completely fell in love with was the mission and the mission of CybeSafe is to fundamentally transform the way that society addresses human cyber risk Um, we all know somebody who's been caught out by a phishing scam or had some kind of um, been taken advantage by somebody online or had their information compromised and um, CybeSafe's mission is to try and actively reduce that and do it not through the way of telling people off and, and saying that humans are the weakest link, but instead empowering people, providing them with everything they need in the moment to be able to make those informed decisions. And so, yeah, that with a combination of infusing the behavioral science element to it. Uh, yeah, I was, I was sold on, on the dream, for sure. Um, I... Currently, I'm working in a squad with a behavioural scientist, product manager, product designer, and a couple of other engineers to um, work towards integrating with other platforms and deliver kind of interventions that will help people to remain secure online and kind of give them the the help that they need when they need it. Um, And that has been a whole. It's been a whole. It's been a. Let me think about how I'm going to do this sentence. It's been an awesome challenge because we have had so many different ways to integrate with so many different platforms. We've also had a whole load of data to ingest and figure out what to do with. And, um, I think working together with behavioral scientists to try and figure out what we do with that data and how we intervene in order to be effective has been incredible.
1: What a fascinating cross-functional team to be playing uh, within too? I, I think being in an opportunity to be like that is so exciting. I know I've, I've been uh, never been on a team that's had like a behavioral scientist uh, of that nature, but you know having design and engineering and test uh, and you know and requirements all working together, uh, small teams kind of working on a problem. That's That's got to be super exciting for sort of that fast iteration, you know, coming up with good ideas, everyone getting to learn outside of their own sort of sphere. That has to be a fun team to be on.
0: Absolutely. And I think we have a big emphasis on making sure that all the voices in the room are heard and we will have the ability to contribute so um one of my favorite things is and we've just had one today we have monthly hack days where you can form a team with whoever you like and just have a day trying to build something just demonstrate proof of concept something that helps the mission or helps you to be able to do your job and so many great things have come out of that and i love that the challenge um, everybody seems to be really really driven to kind of what can we do? What's a great idea that we could try and get into production? And um, yeah, it's just, you never know what's going to happen at the end of a hack day. Um, Yeah, I love that kind of thing.
1: So I know there's no one answer to this, uh, but if there was, you know, something that you could identify that is a little, maybe not the most obvious thing, But something that we're not paying enough attention to as a development community when it comes to cybersecurity that you maybe encounter a lot or you've worked with customers uh, who are encountering it a lot. Is there anything that you can think of? Uh, It could be obvious or it could just be novel that is sort of just as a community, we're just not giving it enough credit for maybe how many people it actually affects.
0: Um, So... This is not quite related to the work at, at work, but stuff that I'm getting super interested in at the moment um, is kind of web application security and the responsibility of the developer in developing secure applications. And there's a shocking stat which is constantly like coming to mind when I'm building things, which um, comes from research done by Immersive Labs last year, which is that 81% of developers knowingly release sec- vulnerable applications and um yeah I think when I first heard that it was like a realization that I wasn't sure how much I was really putting how much thought I was putting into building securely um so I definitely think that's an underappreciated area we often kind of think that security teams will take care of it and kind of alleviate ourselves of the responsibility of needing to be responsible for it ourselves um yeah so that's something that I think more people should know about
1: it's an interesting one, especially in the security realm, because I think oftentimes the only experience we get with learning how to improve security is when we release something insecure and it becomes exploited in some way,
0: yeah. and then we have to fix it.
1: Um, it's so weird that the that the cost of learning in this sphere is often the scars, the scar tissue that we accumulate, and. Mm-hmm. And it can sometimes be difficult. You know, we have the same conversation about accessibility at times, um, and sometimes even with performance. That if it's not immediately obvious when you run your code in your development environment, and then you you see it, it can sometimes be really hard for people to train themselves to understand how to see that. Um, and I think that's challenging in the security space as well. I mean, I talk to engineers all the time, and say, you know, and you look at one of their PRs, and you go. Oh, you absolutely cannot release this. Yeah. You just sort of say, why? And then you have to kind of walk them through like, uh, you're about to expose some really sensitive information to the network, completely unprotected. Like it was useful for you for debugging, but this won't work in the network. And this is not malice or, um, you know, them not paying attention or not being good developers. It's just sometimes th- it's not obvious that it's insecure. Uh, and you really need teams that have a good job of uh, of supporting each other, I guess, especially people that are more experienced. But I wonder, I guess, how we could make our teams help people learn this stuff without having to learn it by paying the cost at some point in the future.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And I think it's, it's a really good point. It's never an intentional thing and it's often a very painful lesson to learn if it does go wrong. Um, I think something that can can go some way to mitigating it is to make sure as an organization those resources are available there are so many um, open source or low cost ways that you can implement tools which do a lot of automate a lot of the kind of checking um, for you but as well as that I think it's just making sure that a developer as an engineer and uh, or a developer you understand the benefits that it does it has with your code to be able to Make um, yeah make build and develop features with security baked in and kind of the advantages it gives you just not in in term, not just in terms of efficiency but also just in like the um, increase in resilience and kind of avoidance of bugs and things like that I think if you make it apply to more than just it's going to make it less likely for a breach to occur but it's it's just going to make me a better developer. Um, then that can be a a really helpful way for people to reframe that because I think quite often, especially with web application security, it can be seen as quite like a black box, black art um, with security. And I think we need to demystify it, make it seem a little bit less scary because it isn't as scary as it seems. um, And uh, also understand the benefits that it has to, to those individual developers.
1: You know, and it also makes me think of uh, another blog that you wrote about uh, 10 lessons you'd learned from your first year as a software engineer. And one of them was that you don't need to be committing code on day one in order to, to be contributing. Now, this wasn't exactly what you were saying there, but this is strikes me as another instance of this, which is that I think people underestimate, especially like in a realm of security, how much you can contribute um, by asking questions, even if you don't necessarily know the topic about which you're asking the question. Mm. It could just be, you say, uh, you know, you just pipe up and you, you, maybe your team is working on the authentication system for your new, for, your, for whatever product you're working on. And you just sort of ask, you go, you could even go in Google. Uh, I know we'll maybe talk about the OWASP thing in a second here, but you go Google issues with auth systems and you come back to the team and you sort of say, hey, what would happen if, you know, someone stole our, our password database or, you know, are we encrypting it? Are we salting the, the passwords? Are we doing these things? You may not even need to know, but sometimes just asking the questions, Uh, And getting the team thinking that way, I can't even say the amount of times that somebody's asked a question, maybe the question itself wasn't the important part, but that made the whole team stop for a second. And then everyone just goes, Oh, no. Okay, maybe that's not the thing. But what about this other portion? Oh, thank goodness, you asked that question. So I mean, I think there's ways for people to contribute, even if you don't feel like you understand how the security pieces work, um, you know, you can still contribute.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, definitely. I can't tell you how helpful as well just that perspective of having a fresh pair of eyes on something can be because you can be weeks into a project and somebody asks a question about something that they're kind of hesitate, hesitating to ask because they're not sure if it should be obvious. And then in asking that question, you realise, yeah, it's, you shouldn't need to ask it because we should have made it more obvious. So, um, yeah, I definitely think strong believer of the principle that there are no silly questions um, and Absolutely. that you... Absolutely. We'll be adding value by doing that. Be curious.
1: I, I love to tell people a story that I once paid for my entire salary for a year in my first couple of weeks of being on a project. Because uh, I was coming in as not as a junior on that role, but, uh, but, but certainly new to that team. And so before I could assume any form of sort of leadership or management, they said, hey, why don't you spend a sprint or two just doing features so you can kind of get a sense of how things work, how the code is structured. And I said, that's a great idea. So the first big feature I sort of pulled off the pile, I sat down to look at it, and I realized pretty quickly hey, I know a thing or two about the type of behaviors that this, the, the types of things that users will be doing when they're using this software. This does not sound right. And so I immediately stopped, went to the the sort of the requirements manager and just sort of sat down with them and said, this just doesn't make sense. Can we walk through this? And sure enough, we went back and compared their notes and it matched up with what their notes said. I said, but yeah, but can we like think about this for a second? And they had some like videos from what the users would actually do, user research. And what they found out was the videos showed this would never have worked. But what had happened is that somebody in a conversation was sort of speaking aspirationally of how they would like the system to be or what they wished the process would be like. And that got recorded as the requirements. And so in this early stage before any lines of code were written, we caught this big problem that would have you know, been developed, tested, released was a pain point for the client, reanalyzed, re-implemented, and re-delivered. And when you sort of add up the costs of all those things, I pretty much paid for my salary within a couple weeks of joining a team. And that's the power of, uh, of contributing without even having to put a PR up, um, just by paying attention and, and communicating clearly.
0: That's incredible. I love that. It's a great example. And I think even um, another way that you can do that as well, contribute and be that that pair of eyes that can help uncover something that's been missed by everybody else is having a look at other people's PRs. Ask those questions if you don't understand what they're doing in their code and kind of spin up their their um, their branch and see, have a play around, be the user, try and break it. All of those things. Be curious because in that process, you're learning, but you're also contributing by... Being the extra pair of eyes to to catch those things out.
1: Now you're also a member of of OWASP, and um, I'm kind of curious if you could uh, explain uh, what role you have there, uh, if if anything other than being a member, and kind of why this, what the significance was of you joining that, and I guess furthermore, why people should consider joining uh, organizations such as that, and you know in whatever industry or, or place that they're working.
0: Yeah, of course. So OWASP OWASP are the Open Web Application Security Project, and they're a group of engineers who produce a whole load of documentation and open source security projects. And um, the reason that I joined was for the learning resources that they have, as well as the ability to be able to contribute to some of those projects and documentation. So um, they have a whole load of flagship projects which are great fun to engage with. Um, one that I love is the threat dragon project, which is a threat modeling, um, application and has possibly the cutest mascot ever little dragon. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, I think it's been great to be a part of the OWASP organization because of the, like I mentioned, the learning resources that they have available. So it's not just, um, clicking through training kind of things. It's it's the ability to actually test things out and um, break applications, figure out what those vulnerabilities look like when they're live in, in applications and um, yeah, access to a whole great group of people as well.
1: Do you think that more people should be involved in organizations such as that? I mean, I think in general, I think finding communities Uh, that match your interest is great. Um, And those could be centered on, um, you know, like some of the organizations that you're a part of, like the coding black females, it could be uh, a local meetup in your community, uh, or these larger organizations, there's so many of them. Now, for some reason, there's so many of them, I can't pull any of them out of my head. (laughs) There are, you know, so many organizations. And I guess I'm curious if you think that people should be involved in more or should people maybe join one and maybe go deep on it? Or is, is that also something that's more like a personal style thing? Like whatever, however you like to kind of get involved in things like this.
0: I think so. I think I have a propensity to like dive deep into my interests. If I find something interesting, I will be like obsessed with that thing for a very long time. Um, so I just say follow your gut with that thing. But I do think that people should absolutely get involved in communities no matter what kind of, they are involved in. I think being involved in community and contributing for something outside of what you do in your day-to-day work and for like I think it makes a big difference that it's for intrinsic value as opposed to for monetary value. I think you gain so much from that like as an individual, um, as a professional and, and just kind of belonging and being able to yeah, contribute to something greater than yourself i'm a big advocate for getting involved in community in whatever way possible i think it's so fulfilling but in terms of um the ones i'm a part of yeah i think the reason that i got so interested in OWASP was realizing with the people that i'm exposed to going through these boot camps and coming from non-traditional backgrounds that a lot of these boot camps don't touch security at all and and kind of being a bit confused by that and realizing that wow people are really scared of talking about these things and that was where the interest came from um as well kind of having that security element in my day-to-day work and working in like a uh, cybersecurity industry in general um contributes to that interest and also probably takes away a bit of the fear as well but um Yeah, I'd just say go with your gut and go with your interests, and you'll find there are so many communities. Like I can't think of a lot to name right now. Right, I
1: know. (laughs) Sometimes when there's too many, I mean, I think that is a human behavioral psychology uh, piece there as well. Yeah. Uh, So, you know, another thing that you're interested in, or that you've that that you do, is uh, an interest in Git and in doing uh, workshops on on Git. Now. I think that this is a great topic it's absolutely hilarious timing because today uh, a team that i was on had asked if we could do a deep dive into get and how it works conceptually uh and what different operations really mean underneath the hood because while they could understand what they needed to do to do their jobs they often didn't have confidence that what that they understood what was about to happen when they did something and i think it's kind of funny that git has formed so much of the foundation of software engineering, Um, and it is very challenging. I don't know if we spend enough time sort of demystifying what it's doing underneath the hood. So kind of curious how you got involved, not only with being interested in Git, but just in deciding to want to teach it to other people.
0: Yeah, so I have been on. A, uh, I've been an instructor on a few different um, web development courses, and having been through a bootcamp myself, it's always an area I see so many people struggle with. Like you said, it's, to get the basics and use it can be okay, but as soon as you encounter an error, it can be quite an overwhelming experience if you don't understand what's going on underneath the hood. So um, I think just seeing that, having felt and experienced that, similar to to kind of. that that curiosity about why people feel so much fear about things. I wanted to produce documentation um, and resources and and workshops and tutorials on things that would help other people get through that because it's it's something that every developer has to learn, pretty much any developer that works in a team has to learn. And I think it can quite often be the thing that puts people off. And I'm all about finding all the ways to encourage people to do uh, web development and software engineering. So anything that I see... That is a blocker to that. And I see people being kind of disheartened when they don't understand it. Um, I want to do everything I can to try and mitigate that and, and kind of help out with that. So um yeah, I just think again, similar to security, I don't think it should be as scary as it can seem. Um, I'm definitely not one hundred percent there with it yet. I don't know if anybody gets hundred percent there with it yet. I still get um a little bit scared when I see that there's a merge conflict and I have to rebase and cherry pick and all those things. But even then I think that's part of the challenge, right? Like it's something that I still have struggles with. So if I try and put together a course for somebody else, that's going to force me to have to learn, need to learn it even more. Um, And so it's, it's kind of, it's helping my own fear as well.
1: Absolutely. You know what? And I hope that this is also a space where people feel empowered to push sort of the community and the tooling to get better because I will tell you, I don't care how many years I do this, I will never understand in a merge conflict what is mine and what is theirs because they're both mine. Uh, (laughs) And so, you know, I've started to see some tools replace that terminology with the names of the branches and it's just things like that that I think they're very small changes but I think would make sometimes tooling and these concepts make so much more sense to people uh, because, you know, here we are seniors and and whoever else, years of experience using these tools. And no matter who I talk to, nobody remembers which is which in those, in those three-way merge situations. So absolutely.
0: Yeah, and I think um, just to add to that, when you, when you look at the power of open source software and how many projects um, kind of influence and, and are related to things that we use all the time, I just get so excited about what it would be like if we had even more power there, more people contributing, more people getting involved. And often, yeah, Git can be a barrier to that. So, yeah.
1: Yeah, it's super interesting too, because know another conversation that goes around Git, and I'm kind of curious how you teach on this too, is uh, whether to use the Git terminal, Git commands, or uh, get UIs—you um, know, whatever tool that people would use—that is, is more UI-focused. I think this is often something that's used to gatekeep a lot um, with, especially junior developers. They say, "Oh, if you if you don't use the terminal, you know, you're not a good developer." When I was coming up, it was if, if you don't use Linux, you're not a real developer. <laughs> you know, if you don't use Vim, you're not a real developer. And I think we are getting better as an industry. It's 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 improving. But you know, I think there's advantages to learning the commands um, and, and sometimes knowing how these things can be parameterized is, is useful to know what it is that you have to learn, um, but it can sometimes be challenging to use. When, when you approach teaching this or when you've learned it or when you've been with people that are learning it, how, where do you fall on that? Like, it, it, do you teach the terminal first? Do you kind of show people, do you start with just conceptual models and then go to tooling and then ultimately to the terminal? Is this another one of these things that there is no pure right right way? Kind of how do you feel about this?
0: Yeah. So I think when first breaking down the concepts and kind of trying to conceptualize it, like you said, I think going, starting with, um, concepts and applying it to everyday situations and talking about it through, um, yeah, real life examples um, and how we collaborate with people on documents and things like that. And just trying to make sure it's in terms that people understand is, is a great way to start, just so it's not so intimidating. And then moving on, I do think that when you're first using it, it's really helpful to use the terminal just because you can then understand and isolate each action that you're making. You have a lot more control. But I would agree with you that it is often a way that people use the gatekeep or make people feel bad about it. Um And there's a lot of that attitude, like it was hard for me, therefore it must be hard for you, Um, which I, yeah, it's just a bit silly, isn't it? But I would say that some of the, well, one of the most incredible engineers I know and have the pleasure to work with uses a a GUI, a a user interface for Git. And yeah, I I don't think it slows him down. It it makes him, but it's how he enjoys the work. So I'd say definitely give it a go learning with the the, the terminal and doing command line. Um, But if it's not for you, it's not for you and that's okay.
1: I mean, and it's it's so true, too, that honestly, like so as an industry and as developers, people that have been developers for a long time, you you learn from people that were doing development for a long time if you come through the traditional pattern. So a long, a, that means that a lot of traditions last a lot longer in the traditional path because you're sort of taught by those people. So that's what you know. So then you maintain it and the innovation goes a little slower. What I love about the industry now is with so many people coming from so many different backgrounds... You have people completely unafraid to just challenge the premises of things that many people just hold to be completely true. In other realms, I've seen this with, uh, um, I have a son, he's, he's five years old, and trying to watch him learn how to use a keyboard and mouse and then watching him use any touch interface is completely blows my mind. That generation, uh, and, the, and even generations that are slightly older than him, they will learn how to interact with systems and tooling and concepts in ways that honestly we will have we have no idea right now how they will how they will understand that so to even think that they will have a terminal to interface with or even a keyboard in some cases to interface with would be a bit of a presumption on our part and there's some part of me that's super fascinated to see as more people enter this, this uh, industry from all sorts of places and as the younger generations come up into it, how they will code and what coding will look like because I think it will surprise all of us. I don't even know if I wanna make an, a guess on what it'll be, but I am very interested as these generations who start with none of the preconceptions, they didn't grow up um, using these keyboards and mice, they grew up on tablets and iPhones and things like that. And as they join the development space, how will they code? Not how could they possibly? I mean, I'm just excited to see the means by which they get there. I don't know if you've had similar thoughts,
0: but. Absolutely, the tools have come a very long way and um, I'm often told that like starting a new uh, development environment is completely different to what it would have been a few years ago. Just the, the um, yeah, the, the the leaps and bounds we've made in developer experience has been incredible. And you can see that in, in products like Gitpod where you can spin up a whole server and, and code and a whole environment from, from a phone. Um, and as well, like GitHub Copilot, you have somebody, uh, you have AI helping you to kind of formulate what you're going to be writing and help you helping you build the application that you're working on. Just these things weren't conceivable a few decades ago. So I'm incredibly excited for the future. I don't think we should be scared. Or um, I know that there can be a lot of, fear and frustration in thinking about these developments. But um, I think that improving the quality of life for, a, for an engineer is only going to improve the quality of the application. And, and that will continue to, to make things better.
1: It's such a great point about the co-pilot. That's such a, a contemporary example of this, where I think some people, uh, myself included, have, have barely used it because wasn't in our um, day-to-day routines. um, But other people that don't have some of those pathways well-grooved are using the tool, and they've never been more efficient. Um, And I I just think that's, yeah, that's exactly right. That's so exciting. Now, there was one sort of last topic that I wanted to touch on, and it's something that you're quite open about. um, And it's something that has become uh, something that I've become quite passionate about. And you've been very open about your experiences. Uh, uh, with ADHD and sort of sort of other neurodivergent uh, conditions. And I, what I find fascinating is that in the last few years, maybe I've just become open and aware to it, uh, as, as, as my son, who I've mentioned before, has, has been diagnosed uh, with ADHD as well, and I've sort of started to realize what the symptoms are and what it means, that I start seeing now on Twitter and elsewhere, people just being much more open about what it means uh, to experience and to live in these spaces as as people that are not fully like other people or like the norm or what was considered the norm. And for me, what's been fascinating about it is the degree of being able to say, this is who I am. It's not an excuse. I am, I I sometimes might need some accommodations that would be useful to me, um, but I offer some benefits and and, and interesting ways of of working. And you know, you tell me how you would like to be interacted with whether that's in a condition or not, just what works best for you. And I can tell you what works best for me. I guess what I'm looking for here is for you to kind of reflect on on you know, being open about your condition and the things that you've sort of learned by both learning about things like ADHD, but also by being very open and forthright about what would be useful to you uh, to be most effective.
0: Definitely. So I'm very recently diagnosed, I think it's nearly been a year now that I've had an official diagnosis. And in that time, been a lot of emotions, um, immediately after it was kind of relief, like, Oh, I'm not, I, Like, you know, I, I, it's not that I'm not trying hard enough on certain things, I do just struggle and I have poorer working memory and find some, some tasks more difficult than others. But I think in relation to how it affects me day to day when I'm when I'm coding and working with others, I think it's been An incredible help to have that diagnosis and to be able to communicate it. I think I see people being nervous about sharing it with colleagues because they're worried they're going to be treated differently or kind of um, left out of opportunities. And I think if you're in a supportive place to work, it can only work to your benefit. I think now it's not that... um, it's an excuse for me. It just means that people have an understanding of what will be a good way to work with me. So, um, for example, I I can often struggle with administrative tasks. And so I love when people can, um, kind of remind me of things that I may have forgotten or uh, give me a little bit of space and time to, to kind of be able to, um, yeah, go through with those tasks. So, um, and as well in terms of communication and being able to, um, hold everything in my mind as I'm trying to say it. Like I'm, I'm much better. I'm a much better communicator when I've had time to think about things because I can, I can kind of take things apart a little bit and, and, and kind of put logic to them. Um, And so all of these minor accommodations um, are just a way for me to be able to say, this is how you get the best version of me in my working life. And like, it's all things that have been, yeah i'd say massively beneficial to the way i work and and the kind of things i've been able to achieve and again it's it's not that the things i'm i struggle with i'm not doing anymore it's just that i have a little bit more grace to be able to do those better i understand where my strengths lie and um i know what to work on and it's not it's not as daunting an experience i'm not punishing myself so much when i do have those moments where i struggle with Some things that that neurotypical people would find a lot easier,
1: and that's what I—that's—that's exactly that's what I love. uh, Is that for me? It was uh, when I first found out about it was releasing the labels, uh, which was to say, hey, I know I'm a hard worker. I know I can do very hard work. And and I have a lot of endurance in doing work. So why do I feel like I'm lazy, because I'm a procrastinator, and I have poor work ethic, and I can get rid of those labels, because it's not necessarily that it's, it's, you know, these challenges that you face, and you can kind of get rid of those, the stigmas in those those bad labels, and kind Mm -hmm. of realize that these are challenges, and then find strategies for for working through them. And I said, you know, now I can kind of understand why I always would tell people I'm great in a crisis, because that's something that a lot of people with ADHD have that once that adrenaline flows, they can just very much focus. And so I said, oh, that, ex- that makes so much sense why that's what I crave is just projects that go from disaster to disaster so that I'm always at my peak performance. Um, and, you know, I've found ways that work for me, like sometimes for me, when I'm doing things I don't want to have to do, sometimes having another person on the call, they don't even have to be pairing with me necessarily, just another person. That keeps me focused because I feel a little bit more guilt about letting myself wander. Having that person there sometimes helps me hold my attention on whatever it is that we're going to work on. And so sometimes I can power through something if I have another person there. It's a personal strategy, but it sort of depends on people. And I find that when I tell people about these things and they sort of explain some of these symptoms and I say, well, you may want to get screened. It's, super, you know, that, that sounds like it could be something like that. It's not because this way. They, and I don't know if you've had this opportunity to see it. And their eyes go wide. And they get so excited. They go, really? (laughs) I'm going to, you know, make that appointment. And that's why I kind of wanted to have this conversation here. And I don't know if you feel the same way Is I just think that whether it's a condition, ADHD or or whatever else it might be, or whether it's just a style, a learning style or what have you, I think knowing yourself and feeling uh, empowered to, to represent that to others and to, and to ask them to adapt to that and to offer to adapt to them is such a potent um force for for efficiency and for 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 productivity for happiness for fulfillment kind of in our our teams and our jobs and I, I don't know if you feel the same way
0: No absolutely absolutely I think we can often be our own worst critics and we don't do a great job at giving ourselves enough grace sometimes and I think that sometimes that can come from a place of not understanding why you struggle with certain things and you know we, we're constantly comparing ourselves to other people that we work with other people that we know and I think that if we do that without the context of understanding what we struggle with, then that can be extremely damaging. So I think, yeah, absolutely. We all owe it to ourselves to kind of investigate those things, whether when you're a divergent or not. Um, it's, there's a lot of acceptance we need to do with what we struggle with and what we can and can't change about ourselves. And I think in doing so, like you said, once you have that acceptance, it just allows you to be able to accept others as well and, and kind of, um, yeah, help, help others.
1: Well, I would love to keep this conversation going all day, but we have arrived at the end of the podcast here. For people that um, have just been intrigued by this and and, and you know want to look into more of the things that you do, can you help people figure out uh, where they can find you online?
0: Absolutely. So I'm on Twitter um, at underscore j e s s i e underscore b e l l e. So at Jesse Bell, um, and the podcast is at Glowing in Tech. Um, such for the glowing attack on, we're on all podcast platforms, um, yeah.
1: Well, thank you so much, Jesse. That'll be it for us today. Thank you everybody for listening to this Modern Web Podcast. And thank you, of course, to our guest, Jesse. As always, we say the conversation does not stop here. As you heard, you can find Jesse on Twitter, at Jesse Bell, that's at underscore J-E-S-S-I-E underscore B-E-L-L-E. And you can find me online at ro- RoboCell. As for the podcast, you can find us online at moderndotweb.com or on Twitter at modern.web. Thank you so much, everybody, and we hope to see you next time. Bye bye. Thanks, Rob. This podcast is sponsored by this.labs, a framework agnostic consultancy that specializes in JavaScript. You can find them at this.co slash labs. That's T H I S D O T dot co slash labs. For all of your friends and you, do-ba-do-do-do,
0: yeah! yay, query, yay, query. shouting, it, yay, query, too.
1: So come on, let's
0: go, because we got a show for you.